Well, if you have your Bibles, would you please open with me once again to Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This time we'll turn to chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this evening. Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. It's our custom here. First, we will read God's holy word, and then we'll pray that he would indeed grant us the ministry of his Holy Spirit to help us understand it as we study it tonight. So let's look to God's word. We'll read it, and then we'll pray. Ephesians 3, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Take heed how you hear it, friends. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Amen. Thus far, God's word to us this night. Would you join me in prayer once again? Almighty God, we come to your word humbly, and we come acknowledging our own neediness and inadequacy. We need your word. You have made us for yourself, and indeed we shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from your mouth. And so we ask God the Holy Spirit, would you grant us insight and illumination and understanding this night, even as you meet us in our need and as you feed us from your word. Indeed, we would see Jesus. Would you help us to do that this night? For we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, it's no secret by now that our theologically impoverished age gives us pause and cause to need up to shore up on some key doctrines, which I've been arguing along the way as we've been studying through Ephesians. I won't go into all of that again. It's just something that we've observed, and I hope you see it along with me, that the year 2020 and following really has exposed some of the fault lines in the church. It didn't put them there, but it highlighted them because they were already there. And at least two of those key areas or key doctrines where we as a national church seem to be the weakest are the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the church. And we've seen the sad fallout, haven't we? People don't understand the need for the church or the centrality of the church. 
And because they don't understand the bride of Christ, the truth is they don't really understand or value the bridegroom, Christ himself, rightly. Now, I do think that our congregation is the exception in many happy ways. I mean that honestly. I'm not saying that as flattery. The Lord has been kind to us here. But nevertheless, this is the pervasive water, the wider waters in which we are swimming, societally, culturally. This is our climate and our context. And God, in his providence, has us here and now facing these challenges. And we need to think through these things as a congregation. If we're going to love our neighbors rightly, share the good news with them, confront them with truth that might lead them to repentance and faith in Christ, we need to be thinking through these things together. And that's why we're in this marvelous letter to the Ephesians. And once again, here in Ephesians 3, in the first half, we have a stunning passage before us this evening. I find myself bordering on being annoyingly repetitive because every passage in Ephesians seems that way. They're all stunning and they're all glorious and beautiful. Every passage in Ephesians seems that way. But a remarkable thing about these first 13 verses of Ephesians chapter 3 is that actually they are one long side thought, one long tangent. He begins in verse 1, you see there, for this reason I, Paul, right, and he's about to launch into a prayer for them based on everything he's just been saying in chapter 2. Right? You remember chapter 2, how Christ Jesus tore down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, and now all who believe on the Lord Jesus are being built up into a unified body, a holy temple, one people of God. And so based on all that and more from Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is about to launch into a prayer for these, his brethren, these Ephesian saints. And you can see it there in verse 14. If you skip ahead, you see verse 14, he gets back on track there, right? Verse 1, Ephesians 3, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then in my translation there's a big hyphen, a big M dash, and skip down to verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. If I can paraphrase verse 14, it's almost like Paul is saying, Anyway, as I was saying, For this reason, here is my prayer for you, Ephesian saints. In between, though, between verse 1 and verse 14, Paul goes on this long excursus. And yet this detour, this holy interruption, is a happy one. I remember hiking through the Adirondacks in high school, and uh, we were making our way up one of the main trails that we needed to take. And uh, the shorter, more direct route that we wanted to take I had a massive tree that had fallen across it, blocking the path. And uh, the way this trail was situated, there was no real way to go around the tree or just, or just jump over it because of a cliff on the other side. There's no real safe way to just avoid or hop over it. So we were forced to double back about a quarter of a mile and take the alternate route. A little longer, far less direct path, much more circuitous. And walking along that path B, that plan B, was the most wonderful setback we could have ever taken. It led us right along the ridge line, exposing breathtaking views and vistas of the surrounding peaks and the valleys that we would never have seen otherwise. Had we taken the main trail, we would have been surrounded by, you know, a number of nice pine trees and dirt for the next four or five miles, and there that's well enough. But going on this path B, this plan B, exposed us to the vistas and the ridge line and the valleys breathtaking scenery that we would have missed otherwise. Breathtaking grandeur all around us. And in the end, it only cost us about an extra half hour of hiking. And so it was well worth the inconvenience, if you like. It was a happy detour. Well, a happy detour is what we have before us tonight in our text. 
Right? Paul prays, verse 1, he is a prisoner for, Jesus, for Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. And as he prays, there's a thought that pops into his mind that triggers him to give an explanation. Of course, this is superintended by the Holy Spirit. This is no accident. It's very much part and parcel with uh, Paul's thoughts and style as he is as a writer, as a thinker, as a prayer. And of course, the Lord simply sovereignly superintends Paul's uh, penchant and his personality as Paul gets off on a detour, the Holy Spirit uses that to minister to us even tonight as he captures that in Holy Spirit-inspired, inerrant, and infallible scripture. What Paul is doing in this happy, Holy Spirit-inspired digression is explaining the nature of his ministry in more detail. Notice in verse 2 that Paul describes himself as a steward. A steward. As one commentator pointed out, back in chapter 2, Paul described the church as the structure that God is building. Well, that word structure and that word dwelling place, in Greek at least, share the same root as the word stewardship. And the root of all three of those words is the Greek word oikos, or house. Right? If you're not a Greek scholar, that's fine. Our word economy comes from oikonomia, right? meaning care or management or rule of a house, oikos. It's more than just a Greek yogurt. It's a wonderful word, here in Holy Scripture with a whole ton of theology packed into it. The people of God, the church, is the dwelling place of God. Right? The church is his house, his oikos, that he is, that it is the Lord's house, it is his manor, and Paul is the steward who works in that house to care for it and to arrange its affairs. It is the stewardship of God's grace given to Paul for the good and health of the church. The Christians at Ephesus... The steward has been entrusted with a responsibility, right? You know what a steward is, a stewardship, to to manage while the master is away. While the master is away on other business, the steward is left in to care for the manor, to care for the estate, and to run it almost exactly the way the master would if he was there himself. So that when the master returns, he finds everything in good order as if he had been here the whole time. That's what a steward is seeking to do in his management. Now, you may remember, as we've noted before, Ephesians was likely written as a a kind of handbook for new Christians, for for new converts. And Paul, in describing his personal ministry here in these first 13 verses, he's also providing a kind of blueprint, a general template, if you will, for the ministry of the church more generally. Right? Paul is saying, this is my work to do as an apostle, the the, the stewardship that Christ has given to me, the the, the stewarding that I must do as an apostle personally, but it's also a general template for the ministry of the church more generally. This is my work to do, but you as the church, he might say, follow my lead. Follow me even as I follow Christ. Follow my lead, Paul says, as I lay out your role for your ministry as the people of God, as the church. But what is it that Paul is called to do for the church. Well, one of the commentators I was consulting outlined it very helpfully, and I can't really improve upon it, so I thought I would follow that outline. Three things that Paul explains for us tonight. First, in verses 2 through 6, Paul explains this stewardship given to him in terms of the message that he is to proclaim. The message, verses 2 through 6. Then, in verses 7 and 8, he explores again his stewardship in terms of the ministry given to him by grace. The ministry. And then in verses 9 to 13, the mission that he must follow. The Lord Jesus Christ has given him marching orders, even as we sang about earlier this evening. Lead on, O King Eternal. So three things 
three things uh, by which to study our passage, a structure by which to study our passage tonight. Message, ministry, and mission. So let's look first at verses 2 through 6, please. First of all, here's the message. Let's look again at some of these key phrases. I think that's the best way for us to understand some of Paul's very thick doctrine that he's expositing here. Verse 3, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Right? So Paul says he has revealed knowledge. He says, it was made known to me by revelation as I have written to you briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight. Right? So this revealed knowledge given to the Apostle Paul, it's been written down, we're told, by Paul. Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Right? So God gave a revelation to Paul. It was written down by him, and it's focused on Jesus Christ. Verse 5, it is the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed. In the Old Testament scriptures, brothers and sisters, it was made known. It was made known, but not like now. Not with the gospel clarity with which it is made known now, Paul says. And so, verse 5, it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What Paul received from God, he wrote down, just like his fellow New Testament apostles, just like the Old Testament prophets of old, just like Isaiah, as we read earlier, and just like he is doing now with this letter to the Ephesians, the inscripturated revelation of God Almighty as the Holy Spirit gives that message to his servants. He inscripturates it, writes it down. It's perpetuated for our good. I love how one man puts it. He said this, So what is the stewardship given to Paul? It is to expound the whole Bible, to preach the new, building on the foundation of the old, and to demonstrate how it all focuses on Jesus Christ. Close quote. Notice verse 6. The mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, one thing that's important to understand is the word mystery and the way the biblical authors use the word mystery in a rather different way than we conventionally tend to understand it. Paul does not use this word in the same sense that you and I use it. Right? So when we hear the word mystery, we must not think of Sherlock Holmes in a trench coat scouring the streets of London with a magnifying glass looking for clues to solve a mystery. No, it's not what he means. For Paul and the New Testament writers, the word mystery means something which was formerly hidden is now revealed. It's now understood. Something which was formerly concealed is now revealed. Right? In Genesis 12, God declared that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. How's this going to happen exactly? They could never have imagined that it would involve the inclusion, the engrafting of the nations alongside the people of Israel to be God's own people. Right? For thousands of years, it had always been right, a chosen, exclusive, distinct, holy nation. Right? Israel, God's people. The others, the outsiders, are far from God. Strangers to his promises. Far off, far off from his promises. Oh, yeah, you have the occasional exception, right? A Ruth, for instance, 
There were provisions in God's law, as you know, for foreigners to become naturalized into the people of Israel, yes. But on the whole, in general, right, insider belongs to God. Outsider, far from God, far from his covenant mercies. And now, suddenly a new era has dawned in Christ. And the gates of the covenant community have swung wide. And the angels trumpet and the heralds announce, Come and welcome to all nations. How will all the families of the earth be blessed by Abraham's offspring? How would God do it? What was once concealed is now revealed. This unveiled mystery is what Paul has just spent all of chapter 2 unfolding and explaining and expositing. This new covenant reality where Jews and Gentiles stand side by side in the household of God, part of one blood-bought, redeemed people. You may have heard this little ditty before. It's a little silly sounding, but I think it's helpful. That which was in the old concealed is now in the new revealed. When you think of mystery in biblical theology, think of it like that. That which was inherent, that which was incipient, if you like, that which was in seed form, true and embedded within the old covenant, but maybe not altogether clear or explicit in the old covenant, now is clear and explicit in the new covenant. That which was in the Old Testament concealed is now in the New Testament revealed. So hidden in the shadows, under a tarp, if you like, with the lights shut off, is this truth that the Gentiles will one day be engrafted and stand side by side, equal and valued and included members of God's covenant people. Now in the new covenant, the lights are turned on, the tarp is taken away, and the object that was underneath is made clear and on full display to be understood. These Gentiles, side by side with the Jews, with the people of Israel, all part of one blood-bought covenant community belonging to the Lord. Old concealed, new revealed. And now, in chapter 3, Paul tells us that it is his God-ordained apostolic duty to bring this message, to announce to the whole world that the gospel of Jesus Christ opens the way into the household and the family of God for any and for all who would trust in the Lord Jesus. And by way of application, this is Paul's point with regard to the gospel. Right? Paul proclaims only what God has spoken. Paul takes no creative liberties, friends. Paul only brings what God has given. The only tool that God has given for Paul's toolkit, the only remedy for the broken world and for a mankind enslaved to sin and its ravages, the only tool that will do any good is the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no substitute and it cannot be improved upon. This is the message, surely, that the church in our day needs to hear, both by way of conviction and rebuke in some cases, but also by way of encouragement in so many other cases. It is convicting because so often we try, don't we? Or at least we're tempted to try. So often we try for substitutes in order to artificially produce results when God's word doesn't seem to be working in our predetermined timeline. It is to our encouragement, on the other hand, because nothing else will work. Nothing else will work to do what God has designed. So let's stop trying and let's trust him and simply use what he's given. My folks in our age, they might like to hear an inspirational message that affirms all of your choices and helps us fulfill our life goals, right? Something that will boost your self-esteem. We might want five-minute sound bites or perhaps a stand-up comedy routine in our pulpits. 
Messages like that doubtless will have a very broad appeal. Right? And some of those things and some of those messages in their proper context have their place, right? Therapists and counselors and financial planners, those have a rightful place in life. But it is not the message given to the church by Almighty God. Right? What the church has to offer to this broken and sinful and sin-sick world is not another Oprah or Dr. Phil, not another political commentary or talking head. We as the church are ill-equipped and unapt to try to offer any such service. The only tool in our toolkit are the words of life entrusted to us from the king. And this, it is this message alone that we bring to a desperate world. Do you see it there in your bulletin? I love that it's there week after week after week. Right there at the top of your bulletin, above the welcome and the announcements. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. John 6, verse 68. That's it. Where else are we going to go? You, Lord, have the words of eternal life. We're not going to find the words of eternal life anywhere else. Except where God meets with his people. This is what the church has. The world needs the words of eternal life. That's what we have to offer. Let's not abandon and be derelict in our mission by seeking to offer up some paltry substitute when we have exactly what this world needs. And we've got a one-jot mission. I love how one man said, one commentator put it like this, this is what the steward of God's house must do. He must give us Bible, and he must give us Christ in the whole Bible. Line by line, he must say to the whole world that there is a place for sinners, regardless of their class or color, regardless of background or standing. There is a place for sinners in the church of Jesus Christ by faith in the good news. Close quote. This is the message. This is the message that Paul was given, with which he was entrusted as a steward. And this is the message which we have been given as well, saints here in Oak Ridge. This is the message that we bear to the world. So that's the first thing. But then secondly, there's a ministry. And of course, this flows right out of what we've just been considering in the message. These two sections are not entirely bifurcated. There's a lot of dovetailing going on. But secondly, there's a ministry. What is the stewardship that God has given to Paul? Well, verse 7 and 8 twice, Paul says, it's to be a minister is a gift of grace. Verse 7. Of this gospel... I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. There's both an individual sense as well as a collective sense here that's worth exploring. Uh, It's individual in that Paul is speaking of himself and his own experience as an apostle, right? You and I aren't apostles, so there there is part of what Paul's saying here that's uniquely applicable to him. But... What he, what he gets, if I can put it that way, the, the power behind his ministry and any ministry, that's true of the church collectively, not just Paul exclusively. He's writing these words to encourage a congregation of people, after all, right? The church, the congregation at Ephesus. So much of what he has to say here is, a, is absolutely applicable to him, and not just him, or them, not just him exclusively. The word minister comes to us from the Latin. It simply means servant. The Greek word there is the same for deacon. It means servant. And in that choice of language, do you see, Paul reiterates part of what we were saying in the last point. Do you see? Paul is described in verse 7 as a minister, a servant of the gospel. What this means is 
Brothers and sisters, in all love and all tenderness and all courage and truth and clarity and conviction, we say to the world, whatever else you think you might need, whatever your felt needs are, whatever you might prefer for us to say from this pulpit, whatever plan of encouragement you think would best serve you, whatever bite-sized packageable TED Talk you might think would best facilitate your life, Fundamentally, we cannot offer the creative devices of man's imagination. We preach Christ. We preach Christ. We are bound to serve up, if you like, the good news. We're a servant of the gospel, beholden to the gospel. Now, this is not to say that we don't offer Christian compassion and care. Of course we do. Please don't mishear me. Of course we offer compassion and care as redeemed people. But fundamentally, it means that we, as the church, have no right. We have no right to disobey God's word and respond merely, merely to the world's felt needs. We're being precise with our language here. We are captive to the word of God. We are servants, slaves, doulos. Our conscience is bound to do what God has prescribed. In other words, in a world that is crying out to you, Give me the toxic poison of the world. Tickle my ears with the soothing message of pretty nothings. The soothing sedative of death that my flesh craves. Give me what I want to hear. We as the church can only respond, friend, we have no right to do so. We have no right to do so. We can only offer the words of life We are bound to obedience to our king. We have no right to deviate. We are servants beholden to the gospel. This is not what the world wishes to hear, of course. And you see the results in North America. Emptying pews and diminishing Christian witness. Denominational membership rosters going lower and lower and lower and lower. Oh yes, yes. The fog machines and the trampolines and the games and the gimmicks, they may attract a crowd for a time. They do. They do. But it's not sustainable. The fervor will fade, and superficiality will give way to the bankrupt devotion that it always was. And we know that in the back of our minds. But it doesn't always stop us from being discouraged in the moment, does it? Look at verse 8. There's many a minister, there's many a Christian that's felt like Paul in verse 8. The least of all the saints. Many congregation members feel this way too. Right? We know ourselves. Mere mortals that we are. We are sinful. We are foolish. We are weak. We are prone to pride and despair. We are given to pretense. We go and we go and we go. We burn out. We wander off. Our hearts and devotion grow cold. We see the American church and her dwindling numbers. We see her anemic witness. And we get discouraged. We're trying to do things by God's plan and by God's way, and golly, it doesn't seem to be working out. Maybe we should try that thing. The church down the road has 3,000 people. Maybe maybe they're on to something. How can we help ministers and elders and all Christians, all congregation members everywhere from wallowing in discouragement and and even self-pity sometimes? How can we encourage one another to stay in the fight, to stay on mission? according to the directives our Lord has given us. Well, we must look to verses 7 and 8 and be reminded that for all the challenges of ministry, for all the challenges of being saints in this world, for all the challenges of being the church, 
standing above and behind the church, lending power to our ministry, is the grace of Almighty God. So that the success, let me use air quotes here, the success of a gospel minister or the success of a gospel church rests not on personal gifts. It does not rest on strength of personality. It does not rest on attractive bulletins or a snazzy website. It does not rest on state-of-the-art facilities or savvy marketing. We want to think that way. Our flesh is always inclined to think that way. No, the health and the strength of any ministry rests but on the grace and power of the God who works by his spirit in the lives of his people. That's where ministry success comes from. That's where church success and witness success and gospel success and propagation comes from. The power of God that works by the grace of his Holy Spirit in the lives of his people. Praise God, dear friends, that the success of the church or the growth of the kingdom or the effectiveness of the gospel does not depend on me. It does not depend on any of your elders and it does not depend on you. Praise God for that. Seriously. It doesn't depend on any winning personality or personal charm or clever imaginations or devices. We ain't got it anyway. It comes, verse 7, according to the gift of God's grace. Remember remember where Paul is when he's writing these words? Think of his own context. Verse 1, where is he? Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He's languishing in a Roman prison cell right now. Paul, as he writes these words, he is no doubt weighed down with care for this congregation. And he's also literally, literally weighed down with the shackles of being a prisoner in bondage. And yet he's able to write these words, or at least dictate these words to his secretary. He's at least able to uh, pass on these words with such fervor and joy and passion. Right? It's almost palatable as you read these words to get a sense of Paul's passion and joy and fervor here. Because he remembers in verse 8, the grace gift that God has given to him. That though I am the least of all the saints, this gift of grace was given to me to preach Christ to the nations. There are those of you here tonight who still remember very vividly what it was like before you became a believer in Jesus. That empty void and that pointlessness, the long march of a living death, And you can remember all too palatably and all too tangibly what that was like. And so knowing your former reality, is there anything sweeter? Is there anything more delightful than to tell any and all who will listen, I have good news for you. Treasure whose value you can never exhaust, whose worth you can never deplete. Here is Christ Jesus, a perfect Savior for all and any who would believe. Oh, my friends, what a privilege and a blessing it is to proclaim such good news. Remember, remember, remember that behind and above all our labors, all of our prayers, all of our preaching, all of our gathering, all of our giving, all of our studying, all of our fellowshipping, behind and all, all of our efforts together as a congregation, giving power and significance to all of your efforts, as feeble as you may think them to be, giving power to all of our efforts, all of your work is the grace and the call of Almighty God. So that's the second thing. The message, then the ministry, and then finally, the mission. The mission. Our mission, Paul says, is twofold. First of all, verse 9, we are to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. 
right, the message about Jesus, the plan of the mystery, it's for everyone. It's been concealed, now it's unveiled. It, it's, it's public information. And it is good news that needs to be published abroad. That's the task. Take the unsearchable riches of Christ to all people everywhere, across the street, around the world. But the scope of the mission is actually even greater than that. Verse 10. Verse 10, this is extraordinary. We preach Christ to the world, bringing Jews and Gentiles, all people everywhere, to know Jesus Christ, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There's a cosmic dimension, a supernatural, celestial aspect to the ministry of the Word of God. Right, that phrase there, rulers and authorities, that's a reference, a favorite of Paul's, to supernatural powers of evil. Right? He's not talking about kings and presidents and governments here so much. It's the same phrase that Paul will use later on in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, when he says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, supernatural evil, demonic agents, things of that nature. You see what Paul's saying here? When the church of Jesus Christ takes the good news of Jesus Christ to the whole world, even the satanic powers are made to see the manifold wisdom of God. I love how one commentator puts it. He says, evil is forced, is forced to recognize God is right. His wisdom is sure and his plan perfect. That's why Jesus came, verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus came in order to bring salvation to the world and exalt the wisdom of God over the wickedness of devils. It was God's eternal purpose. Close quote. And so when the church preaches the gospel about Jesus, you see the effect, according to Paul. Men and women... Boys and girls from all over, every tribe and tongue and nation, are brought from death to life as Christ is proclaimed. And they receive it in faith. And devils are stunned. And their lying mouths are silenced. Sinners are saved and Satan is silenced that all glory might belong to Almighty God. Now before we close, brothers and sisters, we must take note of our resources. The resources that God has given. We've already considered this A bit. This is a daunting task. Take the gospel to the nations. (laughs) Silence and defy cosmic powers of wickedness and evil. Easy for you to say, preacher. This is a daunting task. But did you notice the resources provided for our help? How can the church, how can her people, how can her leaders be faithful stewards in our God-given task? Verse 12. Through Christ, we have boldness... And access with confidence through our faith in him. Indeed, that's exactly why Paul says in verse 13, Therefore we do not lose heart. Right? You think of Paul, he's writing this letter to his friends in the Ephesian congregation. Yes, you're, you're reading this letter, you're hearing this news, I'm in prison. That's true. God's plan is still advancing through his power, even though I'm in these shackles, Ephesian saints. So press on. God is working his purposes out. In fact, even my suffering, he says... In, in, in some ineffable providential mystery, even my suffering is your glory. See that there at the end of verse 13? Do not lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. In fact, it's your glory. 
My suffering in these chains that I might write you this letter that might be perpetuated through all ages to be part of Holy Scripture. (laughs) This is for the good of the church. Do you see what God is up to? This is for your glory, Ephesians saints. Do not lose heart. He's reminding us that his mission was to spend himself for the people of God. And he's telling these Ephesian Christians, saying, look, there was once upon a time that I persecuted Christ. You know it. I persecuted Christ and his people, and now God has given me the privilege of being persecuted for Christ and his people. Don't lose heart, because my sufferings are for your good, so that you will understand the message that I've just told you in verses 10 through 12. In fact, I'd suffer a thousand things, dear Ephesian saints. I'd suffer a thousand things if you could just understand what God says he's making you into, what he's making you to be there in verses 3 through 10. Brothers and sisters, you have the ear of the king. Do you see the resources at your disposal in light of this monumental mission in front of us? You have the ear of the king. Do not lose heart. Know that as you take the name of Christ on your lips and as your babbling, stuttering, stammering tongue tells of Christ to your friends and your neighbors, you have the ear of the king. So access his help. Seek him. Implore him boldly. As the church goes individually and as we go collectively, we go with the power and we go with the presence of the church's Lord. Seek his help. He stands more ready to dispense his power. He stands more ready to answer our prayer than even we are to ask it. So access with confidence his help and power so that you may have the boldness to tell of Christ fearlessly. Praise God for the ministry of his word to us this night and may all serve to encourage us all in the stewardship that he's given us as Christ builds his church as the church advances and those gates of hell shall not prevail against it praise the Lord would you pray with me please O God almighty indeed may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight O Lord our rock and our redeemer seal the truth of holy scripture to our hearts this night for your glory and for our everlasting good, even as we ponder and treasure these things together. We pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.